0: Well, welcome to all of you, glad to join you today. Would you please take your Bibles? Join me in Ephesians chapter five. We're gonna pick it up in verse 25 as we continue to explore this wonderful, wonderful book. Just a few weeks ago, we listened to the Apostle Paul talking about the importance of being filled with the Spirit. And we looked at that, what it looks like in the context of the church. That's a body like this right here. And then we said what we're gonna do as we move on through the passages in the weeks to come. We're gonna look at being spirit-filled in the home, which includes the, the parent uh, relationship with the child. But before that, we were gonna get to the marriage context of it all, husbands, wives. And of course, eventually, we're gonna look at being spirit-filled in the workplace, uh, what that looks like in the context of employers, employees. And last week, we began all of that in the home. We looked at the wives, and I'm here to tell you that uh, as we studied that, uh, we studied the concept of submission, we studied the idea that the, the, the male in the household, in God's economy, is to be designated as an authority in the home. And there will be some carryover into our passage that we're going to look at today with regard to those themes. But I do want you to know, ladies, that you have paid your dues. And so today, just relax relax and enjoy the next however many minutes because now we're gonna take aim at the husbands. All right, and uh, incidentally, I'm not, I'm not worried about the wives checking out this morning. Sometimes when you're addressing a target audience and you, you think, well, there's certain demographics that are not in that target audience, maybe they're gonna tune out. I'm really not worried about that with the wives. I think the wives are gonna find this fascinating. <laughs> I really do, uh, but uh, as we look at this, I can't help but note that last week the wives got three verses, and today the husbands get nine. Nine. Must be because they're so lovable, huh? But that is a load of material, and I think the reason is that when you deal with the institution of marriage, you deal with the problems that have plagued marriage from the very beginning. Historically, the man is a big part of that problem. And so you have to deal with the man, and that's not a slight on men. I'm one of you. So, uh, but I think we just look at it realistically. As the head of the household, you've got to talk to the head of the household in God's design. So why don't we do that today? And before we do, let's have a little word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is practical. We thank you that you address substructures of society in, in human life. And this is not just a collection of random stories and tidbits of wisdom, God, that there's something real that is very uh, nitty-gritty here that we can apply in our lives, in our families, in our marriages. Marriage matters to you. It's the very first institution that you created, God, even before the church. And so we want to take it seriously as you do. And we pray your blessing upon our time in the Word, in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So as we look at this today... Uh, You husbands uh, learned last week that that you in God's design have authority in the home and when you learned that, perhaps some confidence swept over you. Well, buckle up, all right? Because along with that confidence comes some heavy, heavy responsibility and some realities. And so today I wanna give you four truths for the husband. Four truths for the husband and the first one in your notes is this. A husband's authority in the home is established by his submission before God. Okay? Just because it is to you that the wife must submit according to Scripture. And what does that look like? It looks like respect. All right? Just because someone submits to you does not mean that you don't submit to someone else. Paul gets us started here in verse 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. What is the tone that is used here? Does this sound like a suggestion? Is this Paul saying, you know, husbands, I've just asserted that you, you're, you're the boss in the home. And so as the boss, if you, uh, you, know, if you, if you feel like it, if you, if you get around to it, well, it, just, you know, go ahead and, and love your wives if, if that's what you want to do. Does that sound like what he's saying here? No, this is not a suggestion. It's a command. It's a directive here. Uh, Now understand, just like the wives' instruction to submit, nobody's holding a gun to your head. You're not being coerced to love your wives, but it's undeniable that this is a directive and anyone who is on the receiving end of a directive, a command, that is someone who is under submission they are under authority just because you're designated as having authority doesn't mean that you are not under authority and the sequence and order of such authority is granted to us by Paul we see that explained in 1 Corinthians 11:3 if you take a look at that verse he says but i want you to understand that the head of every man is christ the head of every man the head of a wife is her husband and the head of christ is God. And so here's how that all breaks down as we look at that verse. you got God the Father. He's at the top of that chain. Underneath God the Father, you got God the Son. That's Jesus. He's no less God than the Father, but there is an order and a flow here. And then under Christ is who? Every man. Every man. And then it says that under the husband is the wife. Now, People, namely women, hear a pastor, often a male pastor, say something like that, that the wife submits to the husband, and they go, oh, well, isn't that convenient? (laughs) Nice how that works out. So you're saying that you, the man, the husband, you are under authority to God, but I am under authority to you. Well, look how that works out. How do I know that you're actually under authority? I mean, there's no empirical evidence of that, and that's a fair point. Let me pose a scenario here to you. Uh, Let's say that there's a problem in a marriage. Let's say that there's a wife who professes to be a believer, but she will not submit to her husband. She will not respect her husband in any regard, and uh, she's just not going to do it because, in her view, he's not respectable. He's just not respectable. He's not acting like a believer. He's acting like a jack wagon. That's what he's acting like. Right there. He's acting like a lost person. And so she's not going to submit to him because he's not in submission to anyone. He's not under authority. Now, who's in rebellion in that marriage? Well, they both are, aren't they? Unless he's asking her to do something sinful... They're both in rebellion uh, to God's word. That is a dysfunctional marriage. Not only is the wife behaving unbiblically with regard to uh, not respecting her husband, but you've got a male, you've got a husband who is not under authority in any sense to God. And that is what Christian counselors sometimes call a rogue male. It's a person that has no inclination towards submission to God in any sense. And yet they are demanding respect and, and they want respect, but they will not submit to God. Let me tell you something. A man who is not under authority cannot be in authority. Amen. All right? If you're not under authority to God, you, you cannot be married. You, you must not, you should not enter into marriage as a man unless you are under authority to God. And if you're a woman here today who has entered into marriage with such a rogue male... That's a problem, and that's a deep dive. And and unfortunately, we don't have time in this sermon to deal with your recourse in that situation. Uh, That's just a deeper conversation. It's not as simple as you evacuating, uh, especially when there are children involved. So that may be a a conversation for a different time, but let me tell you something. To you single ladies in here, any single, all the single ladies in here, all right? (laughs) If you are zealous, you're very serious in your desire to be married, You're anxious about it, you know, you got a guy in mind that you're contemplating settling down with, but this individual happens to be one of these rogue males. Let me say to you very clearly, don't do it. Don't you do it. Don't marry that guy. If he's not submitting to God, you're just gonna set yourself up for heartache down the road. It's gonna be worse than you say, I'm so lonely. You're gonna be lonelier. You're gonna be lonelier, okay? Because a man who's not under authority to God cannot be the type of spiritual authority that you need In your marriage, and it's always been this way. The man submits to God, then he gets a wife. That's how it works. The man submits to God, then he gets a wife. In the garden, Adam, created in perfection by God. God instructed him, have dominion over all creation. Name the animals, Adam. He submitted to God. He was obedient. He named the animals. Adam, go to sleep. Adam is under the submission of God. Then God gives him a wife. He submits first, he's under authority, then he gets Eve. And that is how it works. So when you consider all that, under whose authority is a household uh, existing? Who's at the top there? It's God. It's God. God is the ultimate authority. He's the head of the home. And then the human head is the man. And as we discussed last week, the concept of authority, when we say the man is the head of the home, when he's, we say he's got authority and the wife must submit, does that mean that the man gets to boss the wife around? No. Does it mean he's superior to the wife in any way? No. Does it mean he gets to abuse her physically, verbally, emotionally? No, it doesn't mean any of that. Uh, this concept of authority has nothing to do with all of that. So, what does this authority look like? How does this man who is granted this authority divinely manifest or exercise that authority? Paul says it very simply. Husbands, love your wife. Love your wife. That's it. That is how you, as a husband, get to exercise the authority that God has given you in the home. You love your wife. Got it? That's what it looks like. That's the optimal way that we exercise authority. Now, the word love is very important here. A lot of words that translate as love in the Bible. Which one are we using here? Uh, One word in the Greek that means love is phileo. Phileo. What does that mean in English? In English, it's translated as a lightly fried piece of fish. No, that's not what it means. It means, It means brotherly love. Phileo, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Brotherly love, is, is that the kind of love that's in view here? Husbands, love your wives like a brother. Is that what that means? Is your wife your bro, your buddy, your pal? You say, well, my wife is my best friend. Got that, but is that all she is? She's just your best friend? It might be another sermon In need here. You might have to go down on some other issues there. So it's not Phileo. What's another word for love in the Bible? You got this Greek word, eros. Eros. What is that? What kind of love is that? We get our word erotic from that word. It's a sensual, sexual kind of love. Does that have a place in a marriage? All the men are like, well, it better, right? (laughs) And uh so, yes, I should hope so. And if you don't have any any of that in your marriage then that's, that's another problem too that should be addressed but the love in view here is neither eros or phileo it's called agape 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 is a divine love it is the loftiest form of love where is that kind of love demonstrated he goes on he says husbands love your wives how as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her That's where agape is best demonstrated. And this leads to our second point in your notes, which is this, a husband's standard for the home is found in Christ's love for the church. Agape is the kind of love God has for you and me. It's the kind of love in view as Christ laid down his life for the church. So great was this love that he went to Calvary for us. And he died for us. And after he did that and he rose again, Uh, We read in Scripture when there is a a moment of restoration, he appears to the disciples multiple times. One of those times is by the Sea of Galilee. And uh, you can imagine after the resurrection uh, how sheepish Peter would have been. You recall Peter's actions uh, from Jesus' arrest leading up to Calvary? They were abhorrent. I mean, he he went off half-cocked. He tried to cut a, a guy's ear off. Jesus rebuked him. Uh, He runs off, and later, as prophesied by the Lord himself, he denies Christ three times. You don't see Peter anywhere on the scene when Christ is crucified because he's embarrassed. He's ashamed. And so now Jesus has risen from the dead. He appears to the disciples. There's got to be this this underlying awkwardness with Peter. So there they are. They're by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and him, they're talking. He says, Peter, do you love me? And what word does he use? Agape. Agape do you agape me? Peter says, Lord, you know I, I love you? But Peter doesn't use agape, he uses phileo. Lord, you know I, I, I love you like, like a brother? Jesus asks him a second time, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo you. Says it again. Third time, Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? And we read that Peter is grieved At this point, not because this is the third time he's been asked this question. No, he's grieved because of the word Jesus uses for love. He doesn't use the word agape this time. The third time he says, Do you phileo me? As if to say, Peter, do you even love me like that? And so, God's standard for love in his relationship with the redeemed is this kind of love that he demonstrated, because we are now filled with the Spirit, we can engage with that kind of love, whereas prior, we could not. And the greatest picture of of, of that relationship between Christ and his church is marriage. It is the institution that we engage in that mirrors that relationship uh, in the greatest way. The bride in a wedding is representative of the church. And you grooms, no pressure, you represent Jesus himself. And you get to live up to that standard. You got to love that woman the way Christ loves his church. That's the kind of love that you have to exhibit. You know, the kind of love that sent Jesus to the cross, where he died a painful, excruciating, selfless, humiliating, horrific death. The lengths to which he went for us. And so you get to lay down. So when we read Ephesians 5 and you ladies read wives, submit to your husbands, and you start to get a little indignant, you can consider the standard that the husbands have to meet. And you guys, when you start to get a little cocky because you think you've got power in this marriage, you just need to consider what that means. You get to die to self. You get to lay down your life for this woman. You get to demonstrate the kind of sacrifice that Christ demonstrated. That's what this means. John 15, 13, greater love is no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. This has always been the case. You look at marriage, you look at Adam. Adam in the garden, he lays down in obedience to God the Father who commands him. He goes to sleep as instructed. His side is opened. Presumably blood flows forth and from Adam's own body comes his bride. Jesus lays down his life as instructed by his father. He goes to sleep in death. His side is opened. Blood flows forth and from Christ's own body comes his bride we are the bride of christ we are of his own body he's the second adam he lays down his life and we are the result now let me tell you the church did nothing to earn that that he bought us with his own blood did we do anything to deserve that we did nothing that's why it's called grace grace means unmerited favor we didn't do anything to earn it so what's the application of all that for the husband The husband is to love the wife whether or not she has done anything worthy of it. She does not earn your love. You love her even when you don't feel she's very lovable. That's what this means. You don't love her because of some return on investment. You love her because you're commanded to by God you are committed to this. When you stood up at that altar on your wedding day, you made a vow and you didn't say, I vow to love this woman if she promises not to be stubborn or mean or clingy. <laughs> That's not how this works. It's for better or for worse, no matter what. Your wife has already been commanded in Ephesians five, we read it last week, she's gotta respect you. She's gotta submit to you and, and she doesn't do that Based on your worthiness. She doesn't do that based on your respectability. Marriage is not a meritocracy. Why does she do it? She's, she's called upon to do it out of obedience to God. Your love for her is not based on her earning that in some fashion. It's based on your obedience for God. And this leads us to number three in your notes. A husband's motivation in the home is not found in his wife's responsiveness to him, but in his desire to obey God. His desire to obey God. You do it to honor him. He's commanded you. And this is the anchor of marriage. We don't do the right things based on the conditionality of our mates because our mates vacillate. Right? We vacillate. God doesn't vacillate. God doesn't change. We change. Is that true? That person you're married to, have they changed a little bit over the years? Sure, they have. In some way, have you changed? Absolutely. People change over time. Okay? You singles, the person that you're going to marry will change. Okay? You just need to know that going in. They're going to change in some way, in a plethora of ways. People change over time. Do we change physically over time? Some of you wives are looking at your husbands going, oh, yeah, yeah, they have changed. Yeah. We men develop what you call furniture disease. It's when your chest falls into your drawers. All right? It's just a reality, all right? Uh, I've officiated at a lot of weddings. If I wanted to be honest at a wedding, and I'm not typically in this regard because you don't want to hear this, you don't want to remember this on your wedding day, but I could look at that couple, and if I wanted to be honest with them, to manage expectations, I could look at them, and I could say to the groom, I could say, uh, first of all, I mean, they look like a vision. On your wedding day, that's your best day, right? I mean, you've never looked that good before, and the truth is, you're probably never going to look that good again. I mean... (laughs) You know, I could stand up there and I could say, man, you guys look like you're on the cover of a magazine. It's all downhill from here. You know, I, I don't want to leave them with that, but I could, I could look at the groom and I could say, son, she is a vision. I mean, well done. That's good, good for you. But you know, son, I just want to... I just want to let you know. I mean, I want to prepare you, okay? Because, you know, down the road, years down the road, now she's very petite, and that may stay the case, okay? But it is possible, and you need to be ready for this, it's possible that years down the road, she might thicken like a ballpark Frank. I mean, it could happen. (laughs) It could happen. It's just, it's just life. And Missy, this young man here, this handsome, rugged soul, I mean, he's just good looking is all get out. I, I, I get it. But listen, the day's going to come when he's going to step out of the shower. You're going to laugh out loud. <laughs> so don't get married solely for looks is the point here. Cause they fade. They go away. All right. We change. We change in our personality we become different. We're not as easygoing as we used to be once upon a time. We might not be as spontaneous as we once were. Bitterness might creep in. Life events happen that affect us. We might get a little crabby, get a little cranky. you got to roll with that. And you got to know that going into marriage. Why? Because you don't want to love people on the condition that they don't change. Because that's an unfair expectation They're going to change. And you love them in spite of change. Some guys are like, well, I'll love, my, I'll love my wife as long as she respects me. Okay, well, you let me know how that works out. Because if you don't love your wife, she will never respect you. Now, is she bound to scripturally? Yes, but make it easier for her, perhaps. Okay? Make it easier for her. I, I believe that every, every man, God will give every man the opportunity to apply this at times when their wife doesn't seem so lovable when their wife doesn't respect them there is no such thing as a man whose wife perpetually respects him nonstop. there are going to be days when you don't feel respected there are going to be days when she disappoints you and 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 she tries your patience but you know what fellas you try her patience too i try my wife's patience big time most of the time we men are not heads And I could say that with confidence because, to paraphrase Paul, I am the chief of knotheads. Okay? But maybe we make it a little easier for our wife to do what God has commanded her to do. You know, don't make her job so hard. So we've got to commit to loving our spouse no matter how she's treating us. Responsiveness of your mate is not the anchor of your marriage. Obedience to God is the anchor of your marriage. Here's a sub point in your notes. It's not her relationship to you that motivates you. It's your relationship. God that's what we learn from scripture so that's what should motivate you and you see Jesus modeling this throughout his life do you think Jesus washed the disciples feet because he loved washing feet you think Jesus went to the cross because he was looking forward to dying and bleeding No. we know in the garden he said father not my will but yours be done he was obedient to God he was submissive to his father And he wanted us, especially in the case of washing the disciples' feet, he wanted to show them, demonstrate to them what God wanted from them with regard to human relationships. And it is marriage that teaches us to do this better than any other thing in life. Martin Luther said, marriage taught me what no monastery ever could. Wow. Marriage, it's been said, (laughs) uh, is our chance to know, guys, how God feels Not because we have a lot of power, but because he wants us to know how it feels to be committed and to to love someone unconditionally, even though that person might might disappoint you from time to time, might upset you from time to time. He commanded his prophet, God did, uh, Hosea, to marry a common prostitute. Why'd he do that? Because he wanted his prophet to know what it was like for his own people, Israel, to cheat on him. Repeatedly as they lusted after idols, as they, as they rebuked Yahweh with their actions, with their idolatry. And yet throughout it all, even though they were unfaithful to him, he remained faithful to them. He was committed to them. His love was not exasperated by their unfaithfulness. And so Christ lays down his life for his bride, the church. Why does he do this? Verse 26 says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. What is that? What's that verse talking about? Having cleansed her with the washing of water with the word. Uh, Paul is describing sanctification. This is the process of sanctification. It's where God molds us, shapes us, by the virtue of Christ's sacrifice. we got the word of Christ, taken the message of Christ, and at the point of faith when we believe, we are washed, we are cleansed inwardly, and he begins to make us holy. We are declared righteous, okay? He has credited that to our account, and then throughout the rest of our life, he literally makes us righteous, little by little, more and more, makes us to be like Christ. And it takes our whole life. But it begins with Christ forgiving you of your sin. Because if you are not forgiven, you can never be sanctified. And the application for the husband in all of this is that husbands must forgive their wives. Do you forgive your wife? Do you do that? Well, I'll forgive her if she's sorry. Okay, well, I hope God doesn't use that logic with you. I hope God doesn't hold your thoughtless rebellion against you for all time and eternity. Uh, Jesus, when he was on the cross, what did he say? Did he say, Father, forgive them, for they have appropriately said I'm sorry. No, he said forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Sometimes spouses don't know what they're doing. I assure you, husbands often don't know what we're doing. Okay, and so we need to forgive as we have been forgiven. Paul says husbands are not to be harsh with their wives. If you look at Colossians, okay? We, we all have to remember this, right? He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. What was happening in Colossae whereby husbands felt they needed to be harsh with their wives? Uh, presumably their wives had wronged them or they perceived their wives to have wronged them in some way. I don't know whether they did or didn't, But they certainly thought they did. And so they were being harsh with them. And Paul says, don't be harsh with them. Meaning, you got to forgive them of whatever you think they've done wrong to you. You forgive. And to, to forgive is not contingent upon an apology. You can forgive somebody whether or not they're sorry. Christ does it with you all the time. All the time. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Why do you need to forgive A wife, why do you need to go into marriage with this instinct to just forgive, to be prepared, to forgive, no matter what they do to you? Because when you marry, you marry a sinner. Newsflash, okay? Your wife is a sinner, as are you. As are we all. Now, she may be lovely, she may have all kinds of qualities, but she's not perfect. She's a sinner, and you need to know that. Because you are too, and you need to recognize that going into marriage because you got to be prepared to forgive. You have to have this mindset, this instinct that I am, I'm expecting to forgive my wife. I am expecting to need to forgive her for things. This is fundamental. When I do premarital counseling, I sit that couple down and I talk to them individually. And I look at one and I say, tell me what you love about this person. And they go, oh, wow, well, where do I begin? And then I get the whole list of things, right? And I, after they're done, I say, well, that's nice. That's nice. Now, now, what about this person really bugs you? Why do I ask them that? Because I want them to have the proper perspective on their future mate because they are going to need to forgive this person. For some things it's going to happen. And so when I say, "What bothers you about this person?" sometimes, and often it's the guy, the guy will say, "What bothers me about her?" "Oh, nothing. She's perfect. You know And I think the reason is, I can't screw this up at the last second. You know I mean, he, the pressure's not because she's looking at him, like, "And he's like, "Oh no, she's perfect." And when he says that, I go, "Oh, that's so sweet." and ignorant (laughs) because no she's not you're not perfect she's not perfect we all need forgiveness and so uh, the reality is you're going to need to forgive your spouse a man has to love a woman that at times will disappoint will do him wrong and we don't get to live by emotion we don't get to get our feelings hurt and by the way guys do we get our feelings hurt Easier than you might assume. And so we, we can skulk about that sort of thing. And sometimes we want to give up or we want to avoid things. But listen, you're the captain of the ship. And the captain of the ship doesn't change the heading based on the wind. And he doesn't abandon the ship either. And there's a lot of marriages where the guy abandons ship because he doesn't like where it's going. Christ is the head of this ship. And he does not change the heading. He keeps on his heading no matter how we disappoint him. And he keeps at it so long, uh, intentionally so, so that in verse 27, it's that he might present the church to himself in splendor. We, the church, are the bride of Christ. He is one day going to present the bride to himself. Jesus is his own best man. He's going to present the bride to himself, and when the bride is presented, it says, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. See, you're being sanctified right now, but you're still imperfect because you still got this this bag of meat that you're walking around with that is tainted, that is corrupt, that is sinful. But one day, you're going to stand before a holy God, and you're going to be without spot or blemish. You're going to be perfect. But that whole process began with forgiveness. And it's not the end of the relationship because he continues on. And we will be radiant, white, pure, sinless before God, the fulfillment of the sanctifying work of Christ that results in ultimate glorification in the presence of a holy God. And what does that mean on the part of Christ? It means that he never quit on you. He never walked away from you. He never gave up. He was faithful. It required time. It required commitment. It required faithfulness. Christ was in it for the long haul. And husbands, you are modeling Christ. He is your, your guide. He is your standard and you represent him. And so that means you've got to be committed. You've got to be faithful. You have got to be in it for the long haul. And you don't get to bolt when things get tough. I watched a documentary not long ago on Netflix about one of my musical heroes, a guy named David Foster. David Foster, legendary producer. He's worked with Michael Jackson, Michael Buble, Michael Bolton, all the Michaels. He's worked with Whitney and Mariah and Celine and Andrea Bocelli and Josh Groban. I mean, just phenomenal talent that has surrounded this man. He's a a great songwriter, musician, producer, all this stuff. His personal life is a total mess. He's been married five times, five times. He's very honest about his failures as a husband, as a father. He says, dumbest thing I ever did, I walked out on my first wife and our three daughters when he was just getting started. He said, what kind of idiot does that? And he owns that. He says, my shrink tells me I'm a runner. I run when things start to get hard, I take off. And I know that that's been a problem since the beginning. But I do think that older generations struggled less with it than current generations. I think we really struggle with this sort of thing. We wanna quit. We wanna throw in the towel. We feel entitled, it's not happening the way we want it to be happening, and so we just give up. And older generations, it certainly did happen, but I don't think it happened with as much regularity. I think we learn a lot from some older generations about their stick in marriage. When I was a, a boy, in Oklahoma, my father was a pastor at a small church in Oklahoma. We had a godly, uh, elderly deacon named John Hinton. He was a precious man, had a, had a dear, godly wife named Nell. And they were bedrock in our church. And as they got older, they moved away, went to Washington State. They had children up there, grandchildren. And as they got older, Nell was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And she eventually lost all cognition. Uh, she couldn't recognize her family not even her own husband. And I remember my father uh, was in Washington State. He was preaching at a church. He was very near where Brother John was living. And at this time, uh, Brother John was quite frail, could not take care of Nell, and so she was, she was placed into a home. And so my dad went to visit John, and they sat down and they caught up, and John said, hey, Pastor Rob, would you like to go with me to visit Nellie? And Dad said, Oh, I'd love to. And so they went to this home. And they they came in, and here was this dear lady who had no idea, not the foggiest notion, who they were. And they sat down with her, and this man, her husband John, sat with her. And he spent hours with her. And he talked with her. And he asked her questions. And he told her stories. And they laughed together. And he read the Bible to her and he read the newspaper to her and they just enjoyed one another's company. And he eventually took a container out of a bag that he'd brought and he opened it and it was her favorite pudding. And her eyes lit up and he fed her pudding from this container. And this he did every single day. Now, why did he do that every day? I mean, he could have missed a day. It would have never dawned on her that he hadn't shown up. She didn't remember him, didn't know him from a hole in the ground. He did it because once upon a time, he stood at an altar and he made a vow. And he said, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death parts us, until one of us lays the other in the arms of Jesus I'm gonna be right here. I'm gonna love you to the end of the line. And Paul writes in verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one, no man ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And this leads us to our fourth and final point and really it's two points in one. And it's this. A husband's self and testimony are wrapped up in his marriage. Paul says no one, and he means no man, ever hated his own body. No man ever ignored the needs of his own body. Is that true, fellas? We tend to our needs, don't we? We tend to our needs. This word for nourishes is the Greek word ektrepho. It means to feed. We get the word trough from it. When we men are hungry, we come to the trough. We're ready to feed, man. And, we, you know, when I'm hungry, I want to eat. I was down in Florida with my wife a few weeks ago, and, you know, it was almost lunchtime. It was coming up on lunchtime, and, you know, it was like 11.30, something like that. I was like, you know, it's, it's almost lunchtime, isn't it? Man, I'm getting hungry. Are you hungry? She's like, no, I'm, I'm not hungry yet. Okay, all right. A little while later, I'm like, so when, when, when do we want to eat? Don't we want to eat before we go to the airport? She's like, what is with you? Why are you always about food? And I'm like, because I'm hungry. You eat like a bird, you know? We nourish ourselves cherish in the greek here is thalpo thalpo it means to warm by body heat like a mother and her babies you protect something by drawing it close to you and, and and we protect ourselves right we men man when i when i develop a cough i get really hypochondriac i'm looking in the medicine cabinet and all this stuff i get a headache i'm looking for something my wife's a whole lot tougher than me when she gets a neck ache a headache I'm like, have you taken something? She's like, no, no, I'll be fine. I don't need to take something. I get a twinge of a pain in my head. I'm, like, I'm It's half a bottle of Excedrin, okay? I'll mess around. I'm like, I got stuff to do, man. I, I can't deal with that pain. So we, we take care of our needs. When something's important, we tend to it. Paul says, as you treat your own body, you treat your wife. You take care of her. You look after her. As you provide for yourself. We, we've got this tendency as men to be very selfish, I have a tendency to be very self-centered, to be, to be caught up in here, what's going on in my life. I need to think of her like I think of my own self, okay? Because my self is connected to her. It's tied up in the marriage. Paul says, as, as you take care of you, you take care of her, you cherish her, you're loving her, you're, you're gentle with her, you honor her as Christ does the church. Very important word, does. What's the tense? It's present tense, not as Christ did. It's as he does. He didn't forgive you and move on. He's still with you. He is developing you. Now, he is perpetually loving you, caring for you, taking care of you. Why? Because in verse 30, Paul says he does it because we are members of his body. It's his body. Therefore, he quotes the Old Testament, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one. Flesh. Two become one. That means that you husbands, you sacrifice your individuality when you get married. Men react to that. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. Wait a minute. No, no. No, I am who I am. She's not going to change me. Really? Not at all? You're not going to sacrifice anything when you enter into marriage? That's not... You're not interested in that at all? Okay, don't get married. That's not how it works, that's not not the deal. There is sacrifice, absolutely. You give up certain parts of your individuality because two are now one. Two are now one, okay? When I sit a couple down for premarital counseling, I go, okay, you guys get separate bank accounts? Not anymore, merge, you unify. You put it together. What's yours is yours. What's yours is yours. Okay, you share. Everything is one. Hey fella, you know, I'll say, you got any hidden habits she doesn't know about? Got any secret hobbies that she's not privy to? Anything you you go down and lock yourself away in the man cave and participate in that she doesn't know anything about? You go away on the weekend with your buddies? and she has no idea where you're going or what you're doing and you don't talk to her about it after you get back you make decisions apart from her all that ends now it changes because all your human allegiances are now subservient to this one human allegiance I don't care how close you are with your friends they are way down the list from this woman I don't care how much you love your mama I'm sure she's a fine lady She's a distant second now, okay? No offense, mom. You haven't been replaced. You've just been reprioritized. And if you are a godly woman, a godly Christian woman, you won't have any problem with that because this is God's way. You leave and you cleave. That's what it is. And the proof text for this to become one is Genesis chapter two. What does Adam say when he gets Eve? He says in Genesis 2, 23, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, woman, because she was taken out of man. And God started with one, and from one came two. And when they are unified in marriage, the two again become one. One. God gave Adam a helpmeet, helpmeet. Hebrew word is is ezer, ezer. Literally means a second self, a second self. Uh, That that bride by your side, man, that is your second self. And it is, is, by the way, this this is one of the reasons God hates divorce. He hates it, hates it, hates it. I've talked about biblical justifications for divorce. There are some. It's a last resort. It's a last, just because you are justified doesn't mean you should get divorced. Okay. It's a last resort. God hates divorce. Why? Because it's a painful surgery. You are removing part of yourself, but it's not just yourself that is wrapped up in this marriage. It's also your testimony. Paul says in verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage pictures the church he's saying the church is a mystery what does that mean that means that there is no hint of the church in the old testament it is as yet unrevealed until acts chapter two we don't have a whiff of the church you don't go back in the old testament and try to cherry pick passages and say well that's the church right there you see where it says israel that's the church israel's not the church i don't know how many times i have to say it it's not the church it's something. The church is something new altogether, and the picture of that mystery, of that relationship between Christ and his new covenant people, the best picture of that is marriage, and marriage is in the Old Testament, and we see that beautiful image, and it is a testimony Because it points to Christ and the church. People who are not believers ought to be able to look at a Christian marriage and have the gospel communicated to them through that marriage. They ought to see that couple and they see an authority who lays down his life for his bride and they see a bride who respects and submits to that authority and in there is the gospel. It's a testimony. How different would things be if we saw our marriages as testimonies? I'm going to commit to you this week. I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to endeavor to every day consider the testimony of my marriage. And I want to ask you to join me in making that commitment. Would you commit to looking at it as a testimony? Because in your notes, how different, how di- especially you men, because how different would Christian marriage be if every husband took these ideas seriously, everything that we just talked about? We begin with the understanding first that it starts with submission to Christ. And we continue on with second, the love modeled by Christ is our standard as husbands. And then we move on from there to the understanding that, third, we as husbands, we don't love and forgive because of what we get out of it, but because we want to be obedient to our Lord. And that naturally progresses to this notion that, fourth, we sacrifice our own desires, our own passions as a testimony for Jesus. We lay down our lives. All of that models real love because love is living for someone else's good. It is dying to self. It is putting that other person first. And that is a true testimony of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And Paul recaps this whole section on marriage. In verse 33, he says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And then he says, and let the wife See that she respects her husband. You see, he brings the wife back in as he draws all of this to the close uh, right at the end here. This is that divine circle that I talked about last last week. I quoted that author, Emerson Egriches, who wrote Love and Respect. You've got this circle whereby the husband loves the wife. And the wife senses that love and she just wants to respect him for it. And then he senses that respect and it just makes him want to love her all the more. And then she feels so loved, she just respects him even more. And he just exacerbates on his love for her. And, he, and it, just, it just flows and around and around we go. Now listen, her respect for him is not contingent upon his love for her, biblically. And his love for her is not contingent upon her respect for him, biblically. But because they help each other out momentum is granted and it just goes round and round and all of that is rooted in the teaching here in ephesians chapter five this is god's design because marriage is important to god it's the very first institution that he ever created before the church there was marriage marriage matters to god so much that he put these directives in his word You can go to marriage counseling for years on end if you don't get your head around this, if we don't get our heads around this and our hearts. Counseling isn't gonna do you any good. Love and respect, love and respect, love and respect because marriage matters to God and it should matter to us too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray your blessing upon all the marriages in this room, including the marriage of the guy on this platform, Uh, we need your spirit to fill us. If I am to love my wife the way you love the church, I can't do it in my flesh. I need the empowerment of your spirit, God, which is already in me, but I I, want to be filled with your spirit. I want you to control every aspect of me, God. I'm frail. I'm weak. I'm selfish. I want to die to my flesh, And listen to the the lead of your spirit. Would you help all of us men in this room to be the husbands that you have called us to be so that we make it easier for our wives to be the wives that you've called them to be. And we pray your blessing upon it all. In Jesus' name, amen.